there's there's a phrase that I hit upon a couple of years back that um, is one of the components that we try to teach. It's only one, but it's a powerful one, and and I and I I define it as radical self inquiry, and it kind of goes like this: What am I really up to? Like really, like what am and, and why did I launch this business in the first place? That's See, right. when 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 we work with a client or a client company and we're encountering what feels like an insurmountable, intractable internal problem, we will sort of throw a curveball at them and say something like, well, why did you launch the business in the first place? Right? And I think that you naturally got to that. In that story you told about the client that was so difficult who was bringing in lawyers and all this stuff, what I think you connected back into is your inner alignment with your inner not you personally, but the collective inner alignment of what, what do we want to do with this business? Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I'm fortunate in my work that I get to speak to so many amazing and interesting people, lots of entrepreneurs, leaders, and even whole teams. And there's a common request that I often hear, which tends to show up in times of real struggle or challenge. What's the right way forward? This can show up in a variety of ways from, you know, I'm just looking for guidance from somebody who's been here before and can really help me navigate to a client who said to me in a first session, you know, I think what I really need is a world-class leader who can follow me for a couple of days and then give me a checklist of all the things I need to do differently so I can be a world-class leader too. Sometimes it's put more bluntly, like, hey, I just want someone who can tell me the right thing to do, or even tell me how to be a good entrepreneur. Now, that last one was actually mine, by the way, and it's what I actually said to Jerry in my very first coaching session. But underlying all of this is the belief that somewhere out there, someone else has it all figured out. Someone else has the answer to the question or challenges that are haunting us at the moment, that there is a right path. And not only are we not on it, but we need someone else to point it out to us, to help us find it. The belief there is the answer does not lie within. But how true is that? In the final weeks of her life, my mom, who had always been the good person, the straight-A student and ardent rule follower, turned to my sister and I and said, don't worry about being good or right. It's simply not worth it. Now, what I have come to learn and what I believe my mom had come to see in her dying wisdom was that it's not worth sacrificing or setting aside what's within you, the wisdom that you hold, to seek the right answers out there. We can become so attentive, especially in our times of struggle or pain, to the voices that live outside that we fail to hear the voices within, the ones that are calling us and guiding us to the right path, the path that only we can walk in the way we walk it. And our greatest work actually comes forth when we are able to tune into that voice. The moments of struggle can become a moment of discovery, a time not to just find the right way forward, but to find the right way forward for you. Or perhaps to put another way, not asking yourself what is right, but asking what is right and true for me. We are truly honored and fortunate to welcome a dear friend of Jerry's to the podcast, entrepreneur, best-selling author and speaker, Seth Godin. In this conversation, Jerry and Seth explore That key and inevitable moment we all face when venturing out into the unknown, when we are lost and ask ourselves, what was I thinking? What do I do? And what do you do with this moment? And what can this moment teach you about yourself? And what if this moment is the very moment you need to find your inner voice, your path? Enjoy this amazing conversation between good friends and collaborators, Jerry Colonna and Seth Coden. As a head of people, you're responsible for all things people at a startup. That means recruiting, cultivating a healthy culture, keeping employees happy and engaged, and dealing with the really tough shit when things get messy. Your team counts on you to be a servant leader, steady and wise. And if you're good at your job, you're probably spending a lot of time listening to and helping others. But who helps you? Do you have a sounding board? What if you had a community of like-minded peers, all dedicated to building healthy, thriving organizations who you could count on to support you on your own leadership journey? 
Join Team Reboot this June 1st in San Francisco for the in-person launch of our Head of People Circle. To apply and learn more about this group, go to reboot.io slash circles. Hey, Bobby. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. It's good to see you, man. Oh my goodness. I'm going to just start off by saying it's probably been, uh, I don't know, seven to 10 years since we ran into each other and we ran into each other at the On Being Gathering. Thank you, Seth Godin, for joining today on the call. And so everybody knows because they're going to feel the affection that we have for each other. We've known each other since 1996, I think. Yeah. And uh, so everyone has some context because those who regularly listen to, to the podcast know that I used to be a VC uh, with his unknown VC named Fred Wilson, um, that Yo-Yo Dine, uh, Seth's company launched many eons ago, was the first investment that Flatiron made. Yeah, and as often is the case, you're selling yourself short. You weren't a VC, you were the VC. Not only did you change my life, but you changed the life of literally tens of millions of people who engaged with the stuff you helped build. And not just because of tactics, but because of a way of walking through the world. And from the first day I met you, I knew that that's who you were. So now you're going to make me cry, which is not a bad thing. Um, Thank you for saying that. Um, What I have come to know about myself is that, uh, and we've both been... um, honest and open with the world about our our own emotional vagaries. What I have come to know about myself is that the degree to which I can be in alignment between the inner and outer me, um, that mitigates my depression. Yep. And uh, when I can live in, in a way in which um, my actions vibrate well with in harmony with my inner aspirational goals and values then i sleep well and uh um so what i'm hearing you say is some something that i have come to really love when people say which is oh you've just been jerry (laughs) you know let let me make a broader point uh frederick taylor henry ford Harvard Business School, which are three problems. And the reason they're problems is Frederick Taylor brought the stopwatch to the factory and Henry Ford encouraged him. And the thinking was that there is a right answer. And that right answer might involve the exploitation of labor or the exploitation of assets or the exploitation of market, but there's a right answer. And Harvard, wanting to teach this, needed there to be a right answer the same way they teach you about um, you know, knee surgery. The thing that you demonstrated more than almost anyone I've ever known is that what separates winners from losers, not just in business, but in life, isn't the hard stuff or the stopwatch stuff or the exploitation stuff. It's the soft stuff, the heart, the way we dance with our fear, what we think when we are on the edge of the abyss. Mm -hmm. And you don't blink about it and you don't shy away from it. You see that there is an abyss, that each one of us is dancing at the edge of it. And I think your act of genius has been living out loud and generously teaching people that this is the most important part. And so you can say that you do it to mitigate your depression, but I think the rest of us benefit from this magical side effect which is that humans are who we are, not AIs. And as humans, the search for the stopwatch and the right answer isn't the point. It's who are we dancing with and why are we doing that dance? Thank you for saying that. Um, I'll allow it to come in. Good. I'm not backing down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'll expand on it and say that I think that there have been seminal moments uh, in, I mean, boy, is this going to sound like a big-ass statement, seminal moments in human history where um, we kind of take a right turn 
into the abyss, if you will. And you just named three really important things, Frederick Taylor, Henry Ford, and Harvard Business School. I would say that in some ways, Descartes kind of set us off on the wrong track by saying, I think, therefore I am. Um, Putting the primacy of thought over the existence of the human. And, um, you know, when I was in an abyss, um, uh, following that time period as a, as a venture capitalist, part of what my teachers taught me, people like Pema Chodron, Sharon Salzberg, Parker Palmer, part of what they taught me inadvertently was that I exist and therefore I create all sorts of thoughts. Yep. And some of those thoughts actually alleviate suffering and some of those thoughts actually um, extend suffering. Yep. And some of those thoughts become tools and machines and things in the world, stopwatches. And some of those are rules that, that don't actually suffice or bump stocks on AK-47s. And some of those thoughts make life easier for people. Um, and and you, you, my friend, are beautiful in your capacity to find um, these gorgeous little stories that tell um, about the human experience. And, and I'm remembering in this moment, um, we reconnected at, the, at, at On Being's gathering uh, a few weeks back. And you stood up and you were telling the story about, I'm forgetting the country, but I remember the animal, the chickens. Ethiopia, yeah. Ethiopia. And the difference that the thought, could we make a higher protein chicken, in effect, could have for an entire culture. And that's a thought made manifest that alleviates it creates its own problems and challenges and you recognize that, but it creates that. And what I see you doing all the time is this wise collector of these uh, really beautiful data points and stories that, that elucidate um, a process of learning while simultaneously affirming a particular way of being. Yeah. Thank you. I, and I think the fork in the road for so many of your clients and for so many of us is there's two kinds of work. There's the work where we know what to do. And then there's the work of this might not work. Yeah. And the work of I know what to do is the factory. It's the assembly line. It's the stopwatch. And we've been brainwashed into thinking that that's safe work. Yeah. Because it's someone else's responsibility. And where technology and innovation and culture make things better is when we're confronting something that might not work. So the, this, the Ethio chicken story that I told, uh, I'd never told it in public before. And I was telling it in front of a few hundred people who a few of them were judging me and the rest were open and eager to hear what I had to say. Mm. But it would have been easier to tell a story I knew worked. Mm. But I wanted to tell a story that I wasn't friends with yet because I wanted to explore what happened when that story collided with other people. Mm. And so the collecting part's not hard. It's the connecting part that's hard. And too often we spend time collecting dots, not connecting them. Mm-hmm. Can you take as short a time as possible to just describe what the Ethiopian chicken story is? Well, so 47% of the kids in Ethiopia until recently were significantly malnourished. And the reason is that most farms are very small and that there aren't a lot of animals to go kill and eat. So uh, kids would eat eggs, but not many because the average Ethiopian chicken lays one egg a week. And uh, a guy from the U.S. uh, realized that there are other chickens that are better suited. So the question is, how do you rebuild the installed base of chickens in a whole country? And yesterday and the day before that and tomorrow... Ethio chicken will sell 1 million six-week-old chickens to farmers in Ethiopia. And those chickens will lay on average five eggs a week. 
I don't know what they do on weekends, but five eggs a week. And as a result, you've increased uh, egg production by 5x at no cost to the farmer. And that's a complete game changer. And the question is, uh, what will you do next? Mm. Now that you know that giving up years of your life and moving to Ethiopia can change the life of millions and millions of children, should we go watch another cat video? Or should we figure out another place where we can do that sort of brave work without a manual? Not sure it's going to work. And you don't get to start with a million chickens. You got to start with three. Well, and I'm going to make a connection that I just heard you make. I'm just going to rearticulate it and mirror it back. There were two steps of uncertainty that you've just identified. One was the uncertainty that you felt whether or not you should share this story, because it's not necessarily a story that you had told before and therefore, to use your language, was friends with. And the other is uh, the entrepreneur who decided to try to, to manifest this thought, huh, what if we actually had a different breed of chicken available? What would, that, what would happen? There's, a, there's that moment of uncertainty right. crossing a kind of abyss of unknownness. Yep. And because uh, in a small way, you, you might have had to experience humiliation in that room full of people. I, I think you're, you're emotionally resilient enough to be able to have handled that. That's fine. Yeah, certainly but, not life or death. Right. And in this case, I don't know the life story of, the, of this entrepreneur, but I can say that there is a moment of facing the potential of humiliation that, 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 that comes from, so you quit your job and you started raising chickens. Ha, what did you think was going to happen, you idiot? Right. And we've, we've weaponized that, right? So David's grew up in a, a normal, you know, American household cultural thing. And you don't win any prizes for saying you're moving to Ethiopia to raise chickens on a shoestring. Hmm. We get what we give prizes for. So, you know, one of the only reasons that Silicon Valley works is you're likely at Trader Joe's to be surrounded by people who are encouraging you to do the thing you're doing, mm. right? But it also leads to a, a new kind of group think, which is there's a certain thing that they respect and honor. And if you're not doing that thing, again, you've got to fight against the status quo. Mm. So this, it's, this narrative in our head, the drama, it's it's as real as a lightning bolt from the sky if it causes us to not move forward. Mm. And, and, you know, and so what, what Pema and your other teachers, I think, would say is we need to feel the feeling but drop the narrative because mm. the narrative is what keeps the feeling coming back again and again and again. If we can experience the feeling and say, in this moment, I'm feeling uncertain because I feel like I have a lot to lose. Mm. We can say, oh, I feel a little uncertain but I'm not going to keep reminding myself of the story. I'm just going to experience that and do it anyway. Mm. Then we have a chance to do that work we're proud of, not just to fit in and follow instructions. Yeah. They, they, uh, Pema's got this gorgeous, tiny little book called Comfortable with Uncertainty, which is 108 sayings. Um, and it's 108 because 108 happens to be the number of beads on a mala, and it's a very magical. Uh, I love Tibetan magicalism. Anyway, Pema has this beautiful teaching um, in which she advises to sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane, um, where all around us the weather is happening, all around us the storms are, st and and and. What I love about that, I mean, just as, as an image, it's a gorgeous image of life advice, but, but it's also this gorgeous image of how should we be when we're David saying, yeah, so I have this idea about chickens and Ethiopia. And the storm is internal. It's, it's the, all those counter thoughts that say, what are you, crazy? You're not going to move. Or external there's a spouse uh, who's terrified or colleagues who say, you know, uh, um, what are you thinking of doing? What are you up to? Or just the, the collective unconscious expression that says, yeah. 
Stay behind your gated fence of your community. Don't go to that edge. That's right. And a key part of it is the mountain is not allowed to say, I can't get wet. Erosion is not permissible. I must remain the same mountain I was yesterday. Mm. Mountains don't get that privilege. Mm. Mountains have to say, there's a hurricane. I'm going to lose some trees. Some topsoil is going to go away and I'm going to get really wet. Mm. What else you got? Mm. Mm. You know, I keep, he, he keeps sitting in my mind as we're talking, maybe because of the chicken association, but there's a, there's a guy named Kent who came on the podcast one time and, uh, I'll tell you a quick little story about it. He wrote to us and he said, my wife has been bugging me to listen to your podcast. She began listening to the podcast and she said, you really need to go on it. And I listened to your podcast talk about where I was talking about somebody's superpower and the superpower was their ability to cry. Mm -hmm. Their superpower was their ability to feel. And he said, uh, what is my superpower? And he told the story. So Kent grew up in, um, I think it's Minnesota, and he grew up a um, son of farmers and grandson and great-grandson. And, but he and his brother um, uh, went to college and got de- engineering degrees. And Kent had developed, has developed a robotic, think of it as a Roomba that moves through the cornfields more accurately applying seeds and fertilizer and pesticides so that it does not, so that you don't have the runoff problems so that you're more efficient so that uh, you're basically, as he said, taking care of the land that is a precious gift that comes from our ancestors. Yep. And, uh, and, and this will come back as one of the things I wanted to talk about was an old book of yours called the dip and he was calling to see, should I quit or should I stick? Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, this is not something where the Silicon Valley VCs are knocking on the door saying, this is the next Snapchat. Or I'm sorry, Snap, not Snapchat. That's how old I am. This is, ne- this is the next whatever. Like all he's trying to do is preserve the quality of the land and feed people. That's all. Right. And this isn't a marketing podcast, so I won't chime in with my marketing take. <laughs> so, but, but, but if we can loop it back, if we will, to one of my favorite little books, and you do some wonderful little books and some wonderful big books, and we should note that you do both. And you've done some amazing books over the years, life-changing books, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And I'm looking over the video of your shoulder and I'm seeing Purple Cow there and I'm seeing a whole collection of books, but I know the effect that your work has had on people. Thanks. But The Dip always struck me as a really interesting little book Mm -hmm. because I relate to it. And, and, and I, you know, as I think, as I'm thinking about your David in the Ethio chicken, and I'm thinking about my Kent and his Grobot, it feels like we are often faced with that quit or stick moment. And most of the time we don't realize it. That was that, I was feeling that. Tell me more about that. So I don't know about other authors, but one way to frustrate this nonfiction author is to read a book I wrote and not get it. And The Dip is a book that lots of people got, that it changed their life. It's also a book that a lot of people didn't get. Mm. And they get to the end and they say, yeah, but it didn't tell me if I should quit or stick. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah. Because the purpose of the book is to tell you, you need to pick. Mm. And we don't often pick. So let me explain the thesis of the book. The thesis is that even in a post-industrial world, scarcity drives almost everything where we associate there is value. Scarcity is based on the fact that there isn't enough. So in many parts of the world, people are lucky in that 
fresh water from the tap is not scarce. And because it's not scarce, it's almost free. On the other hand, if you live in a place where fresh water is scarce, it could cost you your life because it's so precious. Okay, so why is it that doctors get paid more than jugglers? Well, it could be because we need a doctor to save our life and a juggler is not going to save our life. But the main reason is there are way more jugglers than doctors compared to the demand for each. Mm. And the scarcity of doctors is what makes being a doctor quite valuable. If there were 10 million heart surgeons in America, heart surgery would be a lot cheaper. Mm. So what creates the scarcity? Well, it turns out that for many things where we associate value, the scarcity happens because there's a dip. Lots of people start and almost no one finishes the process. So if you're thinking about you know, six-pack abs, which many people think are attractive, lots of people join the gym in January and most people quit in February. Mm. And if they had just made it till April, they'd be in shape. But they quit in February because it's fun to join the gym. You get to tell everyone you join the gym, you have a new habit, possibility and hope. It's also fun to quit the gym because now you don't have to get out of bed in the middle of the night and blah, blah, blah. Most things that people try that are valuable, almost everyone quits along the way. So if we think about the startup world, lots and lots of people say they have an idea for a company. Lots and lots of people write a business plan, but we go from lots and lots to 10 make it to the end, to the IPO thing. Where did all the other people go? And, and uh, with the IPO being perceived as some sort of end. Some sort of end, right. Yeah, but, yeah. Right, so where they went is they quit in a fairly predictable spot. That people quit most things in a fairly predictable spot. Mm. And if you know that that's true, the argument of the book is do one of two things. Either don't start or begin knowing that the journey has a dip and be prepared for it. I'm going to, I'm going to take this moment. I'm going to read from the book to you. Please do. Uh, you, uh, you wrote, the dip is the long slog between starting and mastery. A long slog that's actually a shortcut because it gets you where you want to go faster than any other path. The dip is the combination of bureaucracy and bu- busy work you must deal with in order to get certified in scuba diving. The dip is the difference between the easy, quote, beginner technique and the more useful, quote, expert approach in skiing or fashion design. The dip is the long stretch between beginner's luck and real accomplishment. The dip is the set of artificial screens set up to keep people like you out. Exactly. Now, There's a danger here, a huge danger. And the danger is some people have a structurally defective idea or approach and they persist and they persist and they persist and they persist because they believe that persistence is all that is required. Mm. And so I hesitated with the book because if I was going to encourage someone like that to waste three or four years of their life on the wrong idea, that would break my heart. Mm. And so I think there is room for process and technique and understanding and insight, a lot of room for it. So I begin this thing with the assertion that uh, you're on to something. And so I would argue that the Growbot, from what you've described, is on to something. It's not a ridiculous idea. It's not saying, I'm going to make headphones out of candy right? That there's all sorts of problems with headphones made out of candy. They get stickiness on your ears. They don't make sounds, etc. But even when we have a decent idea, even when we are a musician who people come back to night after night or uh, an inventor who's built uh, an appropriate device for the farm, we're still going to hit the dip. And the question is, when the dip occurs, what are you going to do about it? Mm. And if you view that as a referendum on your quality as a human. Mm. If you go into high alert DEFCON 5, acting like you're at war, all of those processes are where suffering starts to show up, right? That dukkha, the difference between what we want and what we have, 
Mm. You need a little of it to keep going. But if you have too much of it because you've, dis- you've catastrophized the whole thing, you've just signed up for a, a lot of unhappiness. Mm. And so when you and I were working together, it was really interesting because I knew that working with you and Fred was an appropriate dip. I knew that it was going to be the hardest work I was ever going to do. But if I could get through to the other side with support from people like you guys, uh, which was obvious and manifest from the first day I met you both, the other side would be worth that effort. But there was another board member mm. who was a shortcutting shyster bad guy. And he made my life difficult every time I talked to him. Not because it was going to help me get through the dip, but because he was a bad person, mm. literally a bad person. And he was enjoying watching me suffer. Mm. And distinguishing between who's on our team as we go through the dip and who's not and who are we listening to and who are we ignoring are essential because we know it's a dip, right? So if you're going to have to walk across the Sahara, yes, bring water, but also bring a Land Rover and bring a team of people with you who you can trust because there's a dip here and let's not pretend there isn't. Right. Um, I had this connection when I was rereading the dip this weekend with a podcast conversation I had uh, a few months ago with a young filmmaker whom you may know, Jeff Orlowski. Jeff uh, did a film called Chasing Ice, which uh, won a whole series of awards, including an Emmy, uh, because it was also shown on television, I think Netflix. But um, And what, what Jeff did was... Um, just to summarize quickly, he uh, uh, ended up as a young um, college student uh, volunteering himself as an unpaid intern to work with James Baylock, who's a climate sci- scientist and photographer who went around uh, photo- setting up over a three-year period photographing glaciers as they've been disappearing. And Jeff, who uh, was not did not perceive himself as a filmmaker, but as he tells in the podcast, went to college thinking he was going to either be a professional cyclist, a professional pianist, or a professional photographer. Okay. Right? One of those three. Ended up becoming savvy enough to build websites for photographers. His father was a photographer. And so found his way, tumbled his way by staying open uh, tumbled his way into this opportunity where he suddenly finds himself in Greenland setting up cameras, automatic solar-powered cameras to photograph, you know, every few minutes around the clock, right, from, for, for months at a time. And then having all this footage and then making a film. Anyway, in that conversation, we were talking about um, the role of what I refer to as asteroids that come into your life and strike you in a particular way, change your life, change the course of your life. And he describes being at summer camp in high school years, um, a, a youth leadership camp in upstate New York, and sitting around the campfire and one of the elders in the camp telling a story, he's a chess player, and speaking about the strategic retreat. Mm-hmm. And the strategic retreat, realizing at some point in Jeff's life, realizing that he was not actually going to be a professional cyclist, a professional pianist, or a professional photographer, but the asteroid had hit him, and he was, in fact, not even a filmmaker. He sees himself as an entrepreneur focused on social impact issues whose medium and art happens to be film for now. Yeah. Um. And I'm, I'm curious if you, if, how you respond to this notion of the strategic retreat. Okay, so the number of people that you and I connect with now and going forward who own a factory is very low. Yeah. My dad, who passed away a couple of years ago, owned a factory. And um, our fact- friend Steve Kane's father owned a factory. Yes. Go ahead. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And um, so what do we own? You know, we own a very singular asset, two of them. One, what do we know? And two, when people think of us, what do they think? Do they trust us? 
And so you can call it a network, you could call it connections, but I don't like to think of it that way. I like to think of it as, are there humans in the world who think of you a certain way and trust you a certain way? That's your asset. Combine that with what you know, what are you good at? And that's who you are. That's your factory. So when you think about your dip and your career and the impact you're making, any project where taking a step back will increase the value of those two assets is not a retreat, it's actually an investment. Whereas if going forward involves double-crossing people, wasting an enormous amount of time, and learning nothing, you better be really sure that on the other end of that dip, there's something that was worth it. Because you're going to be around a lot longer than this project. And then the question is, what's the shrapnel you left behind? And what are people saying about you to your face and behind your back? Because if you've built the asset of insight, expertise, and trust, you're going to get to make an even bigger impact next time. Uh, I love that. I love that. Because the truth is, I've played chess and I understand the role of a strategic retreat in chess, but I never liked the word retreat. And what you just did was you gave me a way to connect that because what I saw, I mean, the, the, the image I like is the way one crosses a lake with a sailboat, which is tacking, right? And reading the wind rather than necessarily saying, well, I, I need to get to the other shore. Yeah. So let me just set off across the lake. I'll tell you one other cool thing about sailboats. If the wind is at your back, you don't go at your fastest speed straight across the lake. Even right. when the wind is at your back, going sideways across the wind is actually faster than going straight downwind. Right. And I like that notion of reading and feeling. And you know, you made this point about how um, my way of being and my, my, the counsel that I can sometimes give is about heart. What I actually think I'm doing is asking people to use their heart to feel which way the wind is, is, which way is it best to trim your sails to the winds that you're dealing with. Yes, it's very important to distinguish the feeling in your heart from the feeling in your amygdala, because your amygdala is a wily beast. We are afraid of a lot of things, yeah. and often... And I have encountered people who are on the, I'm going to just going to say the woo-woo side of spirituality, yeah. who will use heart talk to justify hiding talk. Yeah. And what makes you a spiritual warrior, which is a fascinating expression, um, is there's no confusion about the two. Mm. That we can distinguish between the thing we wish would go away, the thing we wish we could avoid, the thing that's making us really uncomfortable, which is something we have to do, yeah. versus the thing that probably would work but wouldn't make us proud, probably would work but wouldn't nurture us. Mm. And in those situations, that's when we should walk away. And so when I think about projects, people, industries that I have quit, in general, I'm glad I did, because in general, I did it for the right reason. I said, these people, mm. I know what they want, and I know how they want it, and it's not going to make me better. Mm. So there's no sense in me. You know, the, the one I'm thinking about right now, and you can see it over my shoulder if you want to try to guess, mm. but it was my biggest client, a third of my business when I was a book packager. Mm. And it was a very successful project that I created and initiated and kept my promise, but the client got angry that it was so successful because my share went up as it succeeded. And they thought that I had intentionally made it successful so that I would do better. Who knows? And they started sending lawyers to meetings and they were very difficult. Mm. And after two months of it, four months of it, where we had danced and danced and danced and done good work, I said, you know what? you are training us to be good at working with difficult people. And I don't want to become an organization that's good at dealing with difficult people. So I just gave them the project. I just said, this is what you want, keep it. Mm. And the project went on to become quite successful. And it took my team less than two months to replace the business. 
because suddenly we were energized by the understanding that we could do the work we wanted to do with people we wanted to do it with. Mm. And so quitting that, as opposed to going through the dip, even though it would have been super profitable and I could see the path, mm. it would have made my asset, me, into something I didn't want to become. Yeah, so that, so that uh, and I don't like the word pivot, I'm not 100% sure why, but that strategic shift, rather than forcefully white-knuckling your way through it. No, that's what the contract says. Dude, come on. You owe me this money. Amygdala-driven, fear-driven, anger. Uh, what, what I hear in that story is that you pulled back. I'm going to project into it a little bit. You said to yourselves, perhaps, what's actually important to us? Yep. What do we actually care about? Yep. Uh, oh, we actually care about doing good work with people we like. Let's not invest time and energy building the muscle of being in confrontation with people we don't like. Yes. Because that actually might manifest more of those conversations. <laughs> exactly. That's how, you, that's how you get those more clients like that is you've earned it, right? You've earned it and you've created them. And so this is where we need to talk about scale because so much of the dukkha and the suffering that you're counseling people away from is somewhere along the way, they came to believe that raising more money is better than not raising more money, that getting more aren't they big media is better than not, that scale is such a bizarre concept that the companies that are big today are so much bigger than IBM 1968, so much bigger than what were considered titans then. It's all relative. It's all a status game. It is not actual. It is not, um, we're not basing it on the absolute number. We're basing all of this narrative on relative numbers. Mm. And, you know, I got very frustrated with, my kids both went to public school. I got very frustrated with uh, the sports program because they act like there's a shortage of soccer trophies that the purpose of soccer in high school is to win. That's absurd. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to teach people to be on a team, to teach them to contribute, to teach them to put in effort even when they're not winning, right? Or even when the field is muddy and it's raining. Exactly. So, you know, the coach is up, the team's up by five points, but they still don't put the second string in because the second string hasn't, quote, earned it. Well, how is the second string ever going to earn anything if they don't get to play? Right. So the, the point of the rant is in a culture where the easiest thing to do is compare. I have more Facebook likes than you. I have a higher SEO than you. I have more than this and more than this. And more, that We do what's easy, but that's not what's important. Mm. And if you can identify who you seek to serve mm. and serve them at the appropriate scale, who cares if there's someone bigger than you? Why is that worth suffering for? You know, you, 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 you made an observation before and, and I, I, I hear the admiration and again, I'll take it in this notion of spiritual warriorship and you were, you were relating it back to what one of my teachers, Trumper Rinpoche, uh, called spiritual bypassing, which is the use of spirituality to actually avoid real issues. Yeah. Um, and I think that what you're, what we're talking about now is another form of bypassing where perhaps the soccer coach right. is avoiding a, a particular feeling, which is paucity, which is emptiness inside of me. Yep. And that the only way I can do that is to build. Now we'll switch gears again to build the next tech Titan. Yeah. Because scale becomes, in effect, uh, uh, a proxy uh, or, or, or medicine, ill-used, ill-applied medicine for feeling small myself. Yeah. And it also makes it easy to avoid difficult conversations because the easiest conversation is how do we get bigger now? How do we close this deal? How do we get more basis points? How do we get better terms? Those are easy compared to what's underneath the skin of the person sitting next to me, Yeah. right? Or what am I afraid of? Those are hard conversations. And yeah. so we avoid them because the public says, oh no, it's way better that you were on Vanity Fair's list of the powerful people. Yeah, see, there's, there's a phrase that I hit upon a couple of years back that 
um, is one of the components that we try to teach. It's only one, but it's a powerful one. And, and I, and I, I define it as radical self-inquiry and it kind of goes like this. What am I really up to? Yeah. Like really like what am and, and why did I launch this business in the first place? That's See, right. when, 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 when we work with a client or a client company and we're encountering what feels like an insurmountable, intractable internal problem, we will sort of throw a curveball at them and say something like, well, why did you launch the business in the first place? Yeah. Right. And I think that you naturally got to that in that story you told about the client that was so difficult, who was bringing in lawyers and all this stuff. What I think you connected back into is your inner alignment with your inner, not you personally, but the collective inner alignment of what, what do we want to do with this business? Right. And it's really hard to do it when you're about to miss payroll. And so we add this other drama. And the thing is that so many people who manage to get to the next level in tech aren't in danger of missing payroll again, but they're remembering the way it felt. And so they're still stuck in that mode. So I was lucky enough that even though those were not easy times for my organization, somehow... I got back to the truth of why I was doing this. And I think part of it was I knew I could make more money at Goldman Sachs. I knew I could make more money in a, quote, real job. So every day I didn't go and do a real job. I better have a good reason for that. And it's not so that later I win. It's so that today was worth doing. Mm -hmm. So I want to just throw in a little aside here because it occurred to me I'm being indirect and you're being direct in the teaching that we're doing. So the Alt-MBA, which is the school I run, we talk about the hard stuff, not the soft stuff, as a way of getting people to engage with us. But once they get in, over the course of the month, it keeps coming back to the soft stuff. (laughs) Over the course of the month, what people are realizing is, this is a cool little technique, but deep down, Where's my empty spot that I'm trying to fill? And I have such respect for the people who are raising their hand and coming to see you and your team because you're leading with that. And that takes a a big step forward um, because unlike hard stuff, there's no easy answer for any of this. Mm. Nobody says, oh, thanks, after five minutes. I got this. It's Mm. not like, oh, you just need to change these three variables and your SEO will get better. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. That what's the point of spending 100 years of your life on the practice of what we do if it all involves changing some variables in some uh, Python code? It's not that. It's this endless slog of peeling an onion and realizing there's nothing to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And the deeper I get into it, the more thrilling it is to be able to help people see that that's the hard part. You know, I I, uh, I appreciate the distinction that, that that you're making, and I actually feel more alignment with the way you're approaching things with Alt MBA uh, uh, than perhaps you defined it in that way, uh, because a lot of the folks who come out um, or who re- who reach out either to reboot generally or to me specifically, they will say, "I don't know how to be a CEO." And I will implicitly promise to help them learn how to be a CEO. But the little jujitsu move I will do is, but humor me. Tell me about your dad. Tell me about your dad. Give me 10 minutes. Just give me a few minutes to do this. And, and um, Khaled uh, Halim, my, my co-founder and partner, says we smuggle in consciousness. Um, and I think that you and I are trying, in a sense, to do the same thing, which is provoke a certain kind of conversation. Yep. You know, uh, a few days ago, uh, uh, a fellow has come to a number of boot camps, um, uh, um, he came to Boulder. Um, a number of boot camp alumni have now formed their own little circle. We call them circles. And they're meeting in person and they're doing this without us, which just makes me super happy, right? And we're going for a walk and he said, you know, 
Several years ago, I had successfully raised a bunch of money at a way too high valuation and I hired 55 people and now, and, and I had a half million dollars a year in revenue. And now I have 12 people, <laughs> right, right. And now I have, you know, um, 12 people and we're on track to do 5 million in revenue. That's better. Right. And, all, and he's like, and I'm happy and I'm spending more time with my son and I have two great people who are effectively running the business and I'm thinking about big strategic issues and I don't feel so anxious anymore. And yeah. this is magical. And what he said was, you know, I, I, I want, I, my wish is that others could experience running businesses in this way. And, and let's acknowledge that there are some people, Tim Cook does a magnificent job with Apple. God bless and Godspeed. That is not the way, that's not my job. Yeah. That's not my karma. It's not who I am. But if there's a little band of um, dreamers like you, like myself, and, and I think I'm going to bring you back in time. I remember when you sold Yo-Yo Dine to Yahoo. And if I remember correctly, you made a deal with Yahoo where you weren't going to have anybody reporting to you. And there, there was a glimmer of everything that you're talking about just in that first deal. Am I remembering correctly? Well, I don't know if we have another hour. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was one of the most difficult years of my life. Uh, I remember it that. It was emotionally challenging. Uh, the relevant thing here was, yes, my goal was to show up as an agent of change, not as a manager. I had a couple complications. There, there were five people at Yahoo who voted on acquiring my company. Four said yes, one said no. So they thought it would be good to have me report to the person who said no, so oh I could God. persuade him that it was a good idea. Um, but after I'd been there for six weeks, I had a list of really cool things that we had developed, some of which have come into the world in other ways, not with me. And I went to Jerry Yang and I said, Jerry, here's the deal. I would like to cut my salary by 80%. I would like you to uh, let me rent an office two blocks away for $600 a month. And I will bring you the businesses that you're busy spending a billion dollars to buy because we could build them faster. And he looked at me and he said, Seth, I would love to have you do that, but then everyone else would want to do it too. Mm -hmm. And that was such a startling thing to hear mm. because that's not a good reason to forfeit the future of your organization, nor was there anybody else who actually wanted to take responsibility for having a clean sheet of paper and bringing back something that was going to work. Mm. And that's who I am. I don't work in a company. I work in a studio and in a studio, you deal with a different set of problems. It's not the problem of how do I bend the bureaucracy to my will? And it's not Tim Cook's problem of how do I manage with reliability? It's how do I see something that's not there yet? Mm. And so the thing that I wrestle with when I'm not doing good work is what am I afraid of? Mm. Because if I can dance with that fear, I'm way more likely to say something surprising. Perhaps, and, and we'll start to wrap on this, I guess. I, I had a question as you were saying that that formed, which was, can we all build studios? Which is an interesting line. And then I would add to that, what is the role of facing our fear if we want to build studios? Okay, so I believe uh, nurture is 500 times more powerful than nature. I think where you grow up, how you grow up, what you're informed by, who you're surrounded by, who are your three closest friends, those things impact us. So is everyone capable of saying something original, something funny, something generous? Is everyone capable of connecting and touching others? Absolutely. Is it natural or easy for many people? Definitely not. But neither is running a marathon. So it's a choice. Uh, and the question is, as each of us, if you are not being replaced by a computer, you are way more likely to have a job with degrees of freedom than any time in human history. If you have a job with degrees of freedom, you're in a studio. And the more degrees of freedom, the more it's like a studio. 
So if you want to thrive going forward, you're going to have to figure out how to do a job that someone didn't tell you to do. Because if it's a job that someone tells you what to do, they'll find someone cheaper than you to do it. And I firmly believe that going forward, our challenge is to build business model structures where we're not just screwing around when we're in the studio, but we actually have a chance to create value and sustain ourselves because otherwise it's just a hobby. And there's nothing wrong with hobbies, but it's hard to do a hobby all day. I'm going to, I love what you just shared. And if I can elaborate on it, I think that uh, I often speak about the fact that we're at a pivotal moment where we have an opportunity to build businesses that are nonviolent to the self, yep. nonviolent to our community, and nonviolent to the planet. Yeah. And, and I think that what you've just described is, is an essential element of building that business, yep. which is if each of us had the courage to go through the slog of creating a studio you know, I, I, speaking back to the client that I took a walk with the other day, he was emulating the startup playbook. He was, he was, he was following the startup playbook. He raised the right amount of money and he built the team and he had the VP of marketing, even though they didn't have a product to market, but he had the VP of marketing. Yeah. Right? And then all of a sudden, through a series of very profound, radical self-inquiry style conversations where he said, well, what is it, the business that I've really created here? Yep. And, and all of a sudden, the per employee, by the way, the company is now profitable, right? Not just $5 million in revenue, but profitable, right? So it's now self-sufficient, yeah. a little machine in which human beings get to grow and actualize into more of themselves. Right. I think that, that all of that, in a sense, comes down to facing the fear of being humiliated, facing the fear of failure, facing the fear of being told, you're not a member of the tribe. You're not one of us. It's like being dead, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But if we do that... Then 20 years later, two old friends get to have a gorgeous conversation on a podcast. And even though we had different paths, my friend, we actually had very similar experiences. It's true. I want to say thank you and that I love you. You're amazing. Namaste, my friend. Be well. Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. I wish I could tell anybody who's like in that place of they're stuck and they're yeah. tired and they're scared and they're lonely. And you could name a thousand other emotions or feelings. Like I just wish that I could tell them that there is a way to see mm -hmm. yourself through that. And yes, mm -hmm. you have to walk through it <laughs> and do the work. <laughs> And there is something there for you that will bring you the most amazing life that you've ever had. Are you in the midst of a major life change and feeling alone in the quagmire of feelings? Are you longing for more meaning in your personal or professional life? Or are you already in the midst of the turmoil and excitement of a business or role transition? The Reboot Quest is a truly one-of-a-kind experience to support startup CEOs, founders, 
and leaders who are confronted with personal and professional questions that simply won't go away. This September 6th through 14th, join Reboot Guides Jim Marsden and Jade Shear for a -a one-of-a-kind nine-day adventure in Wolf Creek, Montana. You'll return with the more authentic self emerging, seeing more clearly your work to be done in the world. To learn more and apply for the Reboot Quest, go to reboot.io slash quest.